You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Kat Zakreski, a tech policy reporter here at The Post. And I'm joined today by Meredith Whitaker, the president of the encrypted messaging app Signal and a noted critic of big tech. Hey, Meredith, welcome to Washington Post Live. So great to be with you here, Kat. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we have a lot to talk about today, so I want to dive right in to an op-ed that ran in the New York Times in December that got a lot of attention online. Um, Effectively, this op-ed basically argued that encrypted messaging apps are promoting, quote, a rather extreme conception of privacy. The op-ed argued this is dangerous because this extreme version of privacy could be exploited by criminals. What's your response to that op-ed? Look, this is not a new argument. It's actually an argument that has been debunked um, in a number of ways over the past 20 years as a kind of hotly contested debate around whether the human right to privacy should extend to digital communications has played out. And this has been called the crypto wars. This has had other names, but there are actors on one side who believe that this human right should extend to any mode of communication or uh, you know, uh, uh, creation or what have you, digital or analog. Uh, and then there are powerful actors who would like to have access to the information that would be otherwise shielded if we did extend the right to privacy. So this is not a new debate. I think what is what's interesting about the op-ed is more the op-ed metadata than the contents. The contents was, you know, honestly kind of a mess. And I would point you to folks like Jennifer Granick or Matt Green or Eva Galarpin, who, you know, offered really compelling takedowns on Twitter and otherwise. They're, you know, folks who've been studying and engaging with these issues for, you know, many, many years who, you know, kind of easily dissected the, um, the weakness of those arguments. But I think what is unique is that the, you know, the op-ed is coming at a time when attacks on privacy are accelerating. We see dangerous regulation in the UK and the EU um, that is set to, you know, potentially go into effect this year. And we see, you know, increasing calls for things like, you know, age verification and other, you know, anti-privacy measures. We saw a bill pass in California recently that would require, you know, certain sites to verify the age of people who are, you know, visiting those websites, right? Creating a, a pretty comprehensive surveillance apparatus that would be necessitated for you know, enabling that type of validation. So this op-ed is being placed at a time when there is a renewed attack on the human right of privacy. And it is, you know, it's notable that, you know, this this op-ed, you know, in my view, and I, I, I kind of did a thread breaking this down on Twitter for those who are interested in more, but I think this this op-ed is, is you know, weak arguments that are packaged in the imprimatur of authority. It has, you know, the New York Times, um, always helps with that, that will most likely be used as a kind of hollow citation by those who are in the next year set to, you know, likely unveil um, anti-privacy regulation and political platforms. And I think we really need to watch out for that. You know, what instrumented use do op-eds like this, particularly because it was written by somebody who, you know, I'd never heard of, 
This is not someone who is known in the space. It, you know, the author owned a fireworks company by turning, you know, before turning to sort of ethics consulting for tech. So there's not, you know, this is not somebody who seems to have a lot of groundwork in the privacy debates or a deep understanding of the kind of nuances and particularities of this issue. Nonetheless, an op-ed that says privacy is bad can be easily leveraged by, you know, opponents of privacy. So. And I wanted to go back to a point that you made in the beginning of your answer that this is a debate that we've been having since the early 1990s around what is the role of encryption. And in your view, I mean, is there any way to preserve the benefits that we get from these privacy enabling services while allowing government or law enforcement access to encrypted communications? I think there has been a kind of, you know, again, this is magical thinking that you see sort of cropping up like mushrooms because the will remains, even if the facts are sort of inconvenient, right? Is that, you know, law enforcement, governments, large institutions, corporations would like access to this data, right? Um, however, you cannot break privacy for some people and leave it intact for others. It's a kind of all or nothing proposition. And this is, you know, this is, this is the facts at the kind of technical level. You can't have a backdoor in it, you know, for encryption that only the good guys, as you know, sophomoric as the framing of good guys and bad guys is in a nuanced and adult world, you can't have encryption that has a backdoor for only the so-called good guys that isn't then exploited in some ways by the bad guys. That is then a vulnerability that is open for exploit by everyone else. And it ultimately breaks the privacy promises that all of these institutions also rely on, right? Most people in government use Signal. Most people in law enforcement, you know, well, I don't I don't actually know about law enforcement, but I was in government for a minute. And it, that is very clear, right? People understand the value of privacy when it applies to themselves. It's this magical thinking that somehow leads people to hope, to wish, to sort of falsely believe that there is a way to break privacy, but only so that I can get to those other people's information. Somehow my information will become safe. And I wanted to ask you too, you mentioned the global push um, for regulation and there we've seen a real willingness, especially in Europe and in California to address online harms and really severe issues we're talking about here, like child exploitation online. What are some of the ways you think regulators could try to address some of those issues that we're seeing, particularly when it comes to online harm on social media that wouldn't damage people's right to privacy? Yeah, I mean, there are there are a host of you know, methods for addressing the real world material harm to you know people, to children, to others, right? And this is, you know, I am, uh, you know, uh, you know, I think there there are a lot of methods. You saw, you know, you see um, law enforcement prevail in a number of cases that don't require sort of backdoors, right? And I, you know, I kind of want to lead that leave that speculation to the experts who are working on those issues in particular. Um, what I can say is that we are seeing, you know, child endangerment, which you know, all of us agree, children should be protected, right? That's not a that is not a controversial you know, that is not a controversial stance. However, we are seeing the issue, the very emotionally charged issue of child endangerment being used now, as it has been in the past, as a pretext for arguing that we need to implement, you know, fundamentally unworkable 
uh, you know, mass surveillance capabilities. Um, so you have the, you know, there's a there's a bill in the UK called the UK Online Safety Bill, and folks like the Open Rights Group, you know, I would point people to the Open Rights Group and their work if you want to get a better understanding of of this bill and its dangers. But this is, you know, sort of moving through the UK and includes requirements for, you know, private messaging to intercept accept and scan all content for sort of you know bad content right that content includes extremely ill-defined terms like grooming right what is grooming um i think we can sort of marinate on that question and look at a lot of the anti-lgbt campaigns um and a lot of the you know kind of uh you know, I think dangerous and exclusionary rhetoric that we're seeing in the US and elsewhere and understand the, you know, this is not even a slippery slope. This is like a, you know, a, a, a cavernous drop that happens when we begin to, you know, implement this for a seemingly good cause, which is, you know, protecting children. And suddenly these definitions expand and expand and expand and are sort of instrumented. So you have mass surveillance of all communications in a world where, you know, people increasingly do, you know, they, they they require these messaging services to go about their daily life, to participate in commerce, to participate in their workplaces. And, you know, then there is just a, you know, there is a mass surveillance device in front, you know, between you and the person you want to message that is being controlled by an entity who can define and redefine the terms of what is acceptable and unacceptable content, right? There is, this is an extraordinarily dangerous precedent. And I think history shows how friendly such policies are to authoritarianism and oppression. And on that point, I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the obstacles that Signal has faced around the world. Um, recently, you led a push to make sure that Signal could still be available to protesters in Iran um, despite government efforts to block the app. Can you tell us a little bit about how effective that push was? Do you have any data on how many people were able to access the service from Iran? Yeah, I mean, I think before I, I answer that question directly, I just wanna highlight, like that's a great kind of, uh, uh, you know, almost a crude example that I think proves the point of how threatening to oppressors and authoritarians the ability of the public to communicate privately is right that there was a you know when when you know social unrest and popular uh, uprising fomented and began manifesting on the streets one of the first actions of the government was to shut down communications because that was seen as endangering their authority and their modes of social control. So yeah, they blocked Signal, they blocked you know some other apps, and we put out a call to our community, which is you know you know love you all, really robust and and wonderful community out there um, to run proxy servers, which basically would allow you know people in Iran to circumvent that block and get to Signal through another means. Um, and we don't, you know, those servers weren't run by Signal, right? Those servers were run by uh, community volunteers. But we did hear from people that the traffic stats on those servers were, you know, in many cases fairly high. We heard reports from people in Iran that they were, you know, able to use Signal. We still had issues with registration blocking and other things, but, you know, we did see that that contributed to the ability of people in Iran to communicate privately and coordinate with each other at a time when it was particularly critical. And you mentioned that Signal community, and I think one of the things that's really unique about Signal is how different it is from a lot of the for-profit companies that make other messaging services that people are familiar with. And 
I wanted to ask you, um, because you don't have advertising as part of your business model, will there ever become a point where people will have to pay for Signal? No, Signal will always be free to use. So, you know, one of the reasons for that is we don't want to implement a privacy tax just, you know, per our mission and ethically. We don't think, you know, people who can afford it should be the only folks to, you know, avail themselves of privacy. Um, but beyond that, there's a practical reason, right? You know, if I am the only one in my friend group who pays, then Signal doesn't work to me for me because I can't talk to anyone. Right. So we really do need to leave it open and sort of allow that network effect of encryption to take hold. Um, now, that doesn't mean we might not have, you know, sort of paid storage or other sort of add ons in the future. We're exploring the possibility of some of those, you know, potential revenue streams, but nothing is on the roadmap right now. But, you know, Signal as a service will always be free to use. Um, and that's pretty core to our mission. And I did want to ask you also about some of the recent product changes to Signal. There's been a lot of attention on the fact that Signal has added these ephemeral stories that are somewhat similar to what we might see on Instagram or Snapchat. And that was a bit of a controversial decision. I saw some pushback from some uh, heavy Signal users. And so how do you think that rollout is going and any stats on um, you know, how many people are using it? Yeah. So I don't have stats to share, but I can say like the limited information we do collect and emphasis on limited because we don't collect the kind of user analytics that a surveillance app company would normally collect. But, you know, we do see stories use and we have heard a lot, a lot of good reviews from people who are just enjoying them and feeling kind of a, a newfound refreshing feeling of like sharing intimate content and not you know, and feeling like you, you know, trust the platform, that it's actually ephemeral, that this isn't, you know, smoke and mirrors that's going to lead to some, you know, crappy targeted ads or what have you. Um, so we are seeing, you know, also positive, you know, positive feedback. But I think, you know, what's interesting about this is that a lot of the pushback we were getting, you know, seems it's, it's you know, we're U.S. based, um, U.S. and Canada, but, you know, that's the time zone we work in as a remote team. And, you know, a lot of the folks who work for Signal are U.S. based and a lot of the people we hear from are, you know, folks who are speaking English, you know, they're on Reddit, they're on Twitter, um, they're, many of them are very technically conversant. I would say some percentage of them are probably in the Bay Area. You know, it's a very specific demographic and the choice to add stories, to prioritize that was not made to, you know, you know, uh, prioritize a kind of Western US based, you know, kind of tech centric demographic. We were really looking at populations of people in the majority world, you know, particularly in um, in South Asia and South America, where stories have evolved as like a, you know, just a regular kind of normative form of communication, you know, much different, you know, uh, much different than um, than you know the use case in the US or, or other places in the Western world. And we really didn't want to leave those folks behind, right? We'd heard repeatedly for a number of years, like, I can't switch to signal because stories are the way that I communicate with my friends. And it's just a non-starter not to have these. So I think what's interesting about that is the kind of, you know, the kind and quality of pushback that you get when you deprioritize a sort of, you know, kind of hegemonic, tech-centric you know, always has available bandwidth, you know, Western population and begin building for, um, you know, uh, different populations in a heterogeneous global world. And it's interesting when you talk about that international focus, um, we've seen certainly that WhatsApp, the meta owned 
encrypted messaging app is quite popular um, outside of the US. And I wanted to ask you, when it comes to privacy protections, how does Signal compare to WhatsApp? What are the biggest differences that consumers should be aware of? Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. Um, you know, first, WhatsApp does use the Signal protocol, which is the state of the art, to encrypt the contents of WhatsApp messages, at least for sort of consumer WhatsApp. WhatsApp for business doesn't do this, but that's a different use case. Um, so that's great. And I, you know, want to commend them for a visionary choice there because, you know, at the time they implemented in that, that, you know, the, you know, there, it, that wasn't the norm. Um, however, there are some major differences that really, really do matter. And, you know, lead me to be as secure in saying that, you know, WhatsApp cannot be considered truly private. Um, and those differences are primarily on the kind of, you know, structural factors of the business model and the, you know, attention to metadata. Now, Signal goes out of its way not to collect metadata and metadata for those of you who don't, you know, spend your days mired in technical language is just sort of like, you know, the, 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 information about who is talking to whom it is the kind of you know meta information about you know who what where why when um that you know is in addition to the contents of the messaging or or the other substance anyway so whatsapp collects metadata signal collects almost no metadata we have no information about you um and you can look at you know if you look at signal.org big brother you can look at how the vanishingly small amount of information we're able to provide when we are forced to comply with a subpoena um you know in contrast whatsapp collects information about you know who's in a group it collects information about who's talking to whom it collects profile information it collects photos um and it collects other sort of really key information that is you know extremely revealing and often you know more powerful than you know the kind of contents of the chat um i think you know moving from the the metadata distinction which is you know pretty big and and we need to focus on that um we also need to recognize that you know look whatsapp is owned by meta which is a you know facebook right and their business model is you know the surveillance business model, right? They're one of the, you know, the big players in the surveillance business model. They have huge amounts of extraordinarily intimate information that they collect and create via, you know, Facebook profiles, Instagram, et cetera. On top of that, they can buy additional information from data brokers and do buy this information to create sort of staggeringly precise dossiers about us and our communities and who we talk to and you know what we might be interested in buying and et cetera, et cetera. So the metadata that WhatsApp has, you know, may be, you could argue it's limited in one term or another, although it's already fairly powerful, but it's owned by Meta, right? And that can then be joined with Facebook data and other data that is sort of at the heart of the business model of that company. Now, am I saying that they do this routinely? No, I don't know, right? Like it's a proprietary company. That information is not made available. I'm saying that that is the engine of their business model. They have it available and I wouldn't trust them to sort of keep that promise if sort of some, you know, dreary earning reports and, you know, sad, um, sad, you know, uh, you know, revenue, <laughs> revenue growth numbers um, sort of prompted the board to re-examine that, right? And, you know, 
the difference there is, you know, Signal is a nonprofit. We don't have a board that's going to be, you know, pushing us to maximize growth and revenue. Um, and we are governed by completely different incentives. And so what does that mean in the context of a government order or a subpoena? What information would WhatsApp be able to hand over to law enforcement? Um, I mean, they, I, you know, I'd actually have to check this. I don't believe they publish um, that information with the transparency that Signal does, right? We, again, signal.org slash big brother will give you, you know, everything we're able to hand over. But, you know, WhatsApp, you know, WhatsApp collects my profile information. So my name, any other information I put in my bio, um, it collects photos. So my photo, you could match that to a Clearview database, uh, Clearview being a ma massive facial recognition company. It collects information about who's talking to whom, um, who is in a group. So you can begin to map my network. If you have my name, you have someone I'm talking to, you begin to map you know, who I'm talking to, when I'm talking to them. Um, so that is already a fairly like, you know, that that's a powerful constellation of uh, of data points um, that could then be, you know, obviously handed over to law enforcement. It could also be used to sort of, you know, input into a machine learning classifier to make, you know, predictions and determinations. And it could be, you know, mapped to Facebook data once you have my name and profile, run that through, you know, deep face or something, find, you know, all my images on Facebook. You know, I'm sorry, I'm, I could extrapolate for a while around sort of the you know, the the um, kind of dark potentials here. But, you know, I think the emphasis on like this is this is powerful data. And when joined with other data or other capabilities, it can do a lot. And, you know, it certainly breaks privacy. And how does that compare if Signal were to re receive a government order? What information would you turn over? Almost nothing. And that is by design. Again, we spent a lot of time in rooms together talking about how to limit the collection of data, even though that collection is also often the norm. Um, so we can you know, provide phone number. That's the phone number some account signed up with, not necessarily yours. It could be a Google voice phone number. So we don't really know that. We don't have that information. We can provide information about when someone signed up. We can provide information about when they last accessed Signal. Um, but you know, again, I, I want to actually backtrack when a phone number signed up. We don't have any information about you know, who's whom. So we don't have profile information. We don't have information about who's in a group. We don't have information about who's talking to whom. And we can't match it, that with the other. And again, it, you can find how little information we've been able to give if you go to you know, signal.org uh, slash big brother. Got it. And I wanted to ask you too, though, about Signal's own dependence on some of these large tech companies. Do you yeah. view yourself as dependent on companies like Apple, Amazon, and Google? And what privacy or security risks does that present? Well, I mean, I think dependent is a tricky word here, right? Like, let's like zoom out and look at the political economy of the tech industry right now. The surveillance business model itself trends toward consolidation. So, you know, you have, you know, when you you have the data, you have the infrastructure, you have the market reach, those things are self-reinforcing. And that's, you know, one of the reasons we are now, you know, we went from these like, you know, kind of primary colored startups in the early 2000s, you know, the Googles and, and you know, et cetera, to an ecosystem that is dominated by, you know, a handful of sort of, you know, surveillance companies. Um, and those are the companies that have the infrastructure and the reach, right? Um, so every 
startup. Every sort of you know broadly distributed app that isn't owned by these companies is like floating on their infrastructure at some level, right? It's it's licensing Amazon, you know, AWS servers or Azure or Google Cloud. They are you know to meet the standards of always available, you know, instantly. Um, kind of performance that is now just what people expect, you know, tech to work like that defines, you know, whether, you know, tech works or not, you have to have sort of, you know, global reach and you have to have failover capacity and you have to have the types of infrastructure um, that would, you know, cost us hundreds of millions of dollars a year if we were going to try to bootstrap our own data centers and our own site reliability engineers and our own sort of failover capacity um, and you know maintain and care for those infrastructures indefinitely. So yeah, there is a big issue in tech with the concentration of power and the concentration of power in the hands of the companies that own the hardware, the infrastructure, the data, and the access, right? And then you know we can talk about app stores, we can talk about the Play Store, we can talk about all of these dependencies um, that you know everyone who operates in tech needs to work around. So you know we we could just go into a little cave and create sort of an ideologically pure proof of concept, right? That's like fully distributed and federated and et cetera, et cetera. But like, no one's gonna use that, right? So we might feel really good and righteous about ourselves and like four cryptographers use it to talk to each other. And then, you know, one of them has a kid and is like, I, can't, I don't have time to say right? But if we want to actually provide a service that allows human beings who are not, first and foremost, driven by an ideological commitment to actually have privacy, to actually communicate safely and privately and intimately, then we need to like work with the, you know, work with the landscape we're given. And so we do that, you know, I, I would say to, you, you added a question, like what are the privacy and security considerations of sort of, you know, licensing those infrastructures? Um, we do a lot of work to make sure that, you know, the encryption means that neither signal nor the owners of those infrastructures can see anything. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, we do have to work with the uh, work at the world we are in. Um, and we, you know, our decision is to prioritize the norms and expectations of the humans who are using us, not sort of, you know, ideological North Stars. And you mentioned the consolidation in the tech industry, and you worked at the Federal Trade Commission under Lena Khan. There's been a lot of uh, excitement that Lena Khan would usher in a new era of tech accountability in that role. How do you think that's been going? Well, you know, it is an uphill battle. Um, I, you know, more power to her and all the brilliant, you know, staffers and lawyers who are working with her. But it's not, you know. I would say the best thing that people who care about privacy, who care about the distribution of the power that is currently concentrated in the hands of a handful of large tech companies can do is, you know, hold their feet to the fire, give them as much leverage as you can to be able to push things through an agency that itself is often recalcitrant and sort of constrained and, you know, contains folks who might not agree or might want to get a job as general counsel somewhere else afterward and don't want their name on some you know strong legislation um i would also you know i would also look to the lobbying dollars that uh the tech industry is spending um for another indication of the kind of uphill battle but i think you know again it's going to take you know it's going to take folks outside it's going to take folks inside it's going to take you know a concerted push to get 
meaningful regulation that cognizes the sort of reality of the tech industry uh, over the finish line. And we have just about a minute left. And so I wanted to ask, what can people expect from Signal in 2023? Well, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. Um, we are, you know, I have I've talked before. We are working on usernames. We don't have a launch date, but we are expecting those, you know, this year. Hopefully, first half of this year. But again, you know, they will be done when they're done because we're going to do them right and we're going to do, you know, everything we need to make sure that they are, you know, robust and ready to launch. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't have another you know part of the roadmap to preview here. Um, but we do love hearing from folks who use Signal. There's a Reddit forum, there are community forums, you know, there's Twitter. You can you know, join the, the ranks of the helpful reply guys there. Um, and we will, you know, we're going to continue, you know, with a, a sole focus on privacy, on building, you know, the best, most usable app we can that, you know, also protects privacy in a robust way. And we hope that you know, we can lead by example, and some of the other companies will start coming along with us, not only encrypting message contents, but encrypting metadata. And we do have, you know, specifications for how we do that that are also available openly. And we are always happy to share um, if there are people who are interested in sort of meeting us at the high bar. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have left for today. Thank you so much, Meredith, for joining us for such an informative and important discussion about the future of privacy. Wonderful, thank you so much, Kat. Have a great day and thank you all. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.